Hey, everybody, welcome to The Rooftop, another podcast where we talk about the leadership best practices to operationalize the upswing, to make better connections in our communities and our places of work and our lives, our businesses. And today, we're, the, the subject of today's episode is leading our kids out of the storm. And by the storm, I'm talking specifically about the COVID pandemic, but there are other aspects of it as well, uh, of the recent couple of years. It has been a rough couple of years. It's been a challenging couple of years for uh, citizens around the world, but certainly those of us here in the United States. And as we think about where we go from here in leading out of these challenging times and into better days, I think we have to consider the component of our youth. We have to think about our kids and, and what the last couple of years have been like for them. And, and as well as the educators who have helped them move forward and, and what it's going to take to overcome some of those impacts and position them to be the most effective leaders possible. And I, I have, so as we ask that question, how do we lead ourselves? How do we lead our kids out of this storm? How do we lead ourselves? And what do we need to know about that? I met an amazing person a couple of weeks ago at um, an event I did at the Hillsborough uh, Public School System where I was reading my kid's book. And a lot of you listening probably are going, uh, didn't even know he had a kid's book. And I do. I wrote a kid's book, my wife and I did, called Daddy Keeps Us Free and another one called Mommy Keeps Us Free for military kids back in 04 when the war was raging and a lot of our military children just didn't have the access to storytelling the way that a lot of kids' books do. And frankly, they had some unique needs that I wanted moms and dads in the military to be able to share with them. So my wife and I wrote this book. We self-published it. It's been around for a long time. Our nonprofit, The Hero's Journey, puts it out there to veterans groups and active duty groups all over the country. And uh, my guest and several other administrators uh, in the Hillsborough Public uh, School System were kind enough to invite me to come in and read uh, on a video segment to the kids. And now um, it's it's available out there in varying capacities to uh, children in our, our school system here in Hillsborough County. So I'm super honored by that. But in doing so, I met um, my guest, uh, the principal at Tinker Elementary, Rachel Walters. And she and I just had some really cool conversations in the short space of time that we were together. And I just said to her on the way out in the parking lot, I'm like, I want you on my podcast. And she said, okay. And it was, it was just that, it was that quick and that cool. And I knew though, as soon as I talked to her and I got her perspective on things that she is the kind of leader that having on here is just going to, is really going to be helpful to this hard question of how do we lead our kids out of the storm? So Rachel, thanks for being on. Absolutely. I feel honored to be here and it's just a privilege because I love listening to the podcast because I've learned so much from you already. Oh, thank you. And you know, we had, I think our first time that we had educators on the podcast was when COVID first kicked off. And it's hard to believe, but that was a couple of years ago. And I just remember the feedback we got from that podcast, from people who were listening to it in times of real crisis. They were so appreciative of the perspective that these educators gave and just a no nonsense kind of way. And so I'm, I'm committed to just continuing to pull up and get the perspective from our educators on not just how we lead our kids, but just what you all are seeing in the trenches. Because I think you really are on the front lines of leadership today. So before we get started, Rachel, um, could you just kind of give us a little bit about your, your backstory 
um, well, where you hail from and, and what led you into the line of work that, that you do today? Um, well, I'm actually from Indiana and I did not start out as an education major. I really um, wanted to go into telecommunications, but I had a job at a radio station and it was so boring. And a friend invited me to go help with Special Olympics and working with kids with disabilities. And I had a great time. So I went ahead and changed my major and became a special education teacher. But then I had a friend that spotted something in me and said, you know what, you have some leadership skills. Why don't you try doing um, leading this part of the um, school? And I'm like, okay, I didn't see it, but they saw something in me and it took me on a path to become an administrator. And I've had such um, great opportunities working in various schools with um, students who have very um, high socioeconomic status to um, what we call transformation schools, where it's very high poverty, high minority, um, very high needs. But then I was lucky enough to hear about um, the principal here at Tinker K-8 was retiring. And I loved the administrator who was overseeing the school. It wasn't really the military connection. It was just the opportunity to go back and work with a great leader. And she brought me on. But in since I've been here, this is now going into my fifth year, I've developed such a passion for working with military kids and their families because um, the service members do so much for our country. And we know that if we can take care of their kids, they don't have to worry about it and they can focus on the mission. And so it is just such an honor to be able to um, work with these families each and every day and really experience the outside world from what they've, um, where they've served outside of the United States as well. Yeah, that's so cool. And you and I were having this conversation and this is really how we got connected, but I, for our, our listeners, some, I'm sure some of you don't, aren't familiar with, with Tinker Elementary School, but another connection that I have with Rachel and Tinker is it's on McDill and I'm going to get you to tell us about the school here in a second, but it is, um, it is a very, very cool thing because while it's part of our County school system, it is also on McDill air force base and McDill air force base is the home to us special operations command, us central command. It really, I mean, in many ways was the kind of the command nerve center of the war on terror for the 20 years that, the country was at war in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other places. And so you had not only the children of our, of many of our, our active duty personnel, but also the, you know, those that were, were, were spending a lot of time uh, in the Middle East and, and Southwest Asia. So tell us a little bit about the school, Rachel, and I'm, I'm especially intrigued with you coming from kind of an outside military perspective. What, Tell us a little bit about the school and, and, and just some of your observations about this, this population that we call the military family and our military kids. Well, it is a unique school and we service pre-K actually through eighth grade. So elementary oh, wow. and okay. middle school yeah, right okay. here. And um, that came about probably about seven years ago before I came on board. But our attendance zone is actually McDill Air Force Base. And unfortunately, we get a lot of calls. You know what? I live out in the Fishhawk area or I live right off base. Can my kids come to Tinker? No, it really is designed to um, help those family members that live right on base. And right. so the only um, children that live off base are really staff member children. They are allowed to come as well. 
And uh, when I first came on board, I got a great idea from one of the parents that um, I was uh, communicating with. And she told me about another base that did an immersion program for the teachers of the school. And so we got connected with um, Terry, who is the PR person here at McDill. So each year, he helps immerse my faculty into the life of the military. And it was so eye-opening to me as I sat through the first time listening to a service member, because I didn't realize, you know what, even if the family member isn't deployed, many of our um, parents that work on base, they're working with the time zones in the Middle East. And so they may not have that same balance that a typical family would have outside of a military community. And so just knowing that, but also um, my population in my school turns over at least 30% each and every year. I have just different students coming in and out and family members about every two years. And so knowing that they transition through many different schools and by the time they get to us in middle school, they may have already attended four schools. We really want to focus on getting them that quick sense of belonging because we know as educators, if someone feels like they belong their um, academic achievement will excel at that point. And so just knowing our families and knowing that um, the trauma that they can go through um, when a family member is deployed um, and not just for the children, but just that spouse that is operating as a single parent when um, the service member is deployed. Yeah, I love that. And and the fact that you all are so attuned to that is really uh uh, heartening to me. And I have to say, and, and this is, I think you and I talked about this, but my children attended, we didn't live on McGill. So we, we lived out in the, in the Valrico area, but my children attended um, Chimino. And, and I, I, I know this is a national podcast, but I'm going to throw a shout out to that, that elementary school, because honestly, they were so attuned to the needs of the military family. And I, I just think it was really cool to see um education institutions that do that. I know with, with our play last out, one of the things, the reasons I wrote the play was because I felt like there's such a vast population in the country that just is not exposed to the trials and tribulations of, a, of, of the military family, particularly in this long war that they were in. And I'm sure you saw firsthand that it is a very stressful existence for a military child that a lot of people just, they don't, they don't know about. I agree with that. And I can um, honestly say that I was under the misconception, oh, I'm going to go work at McDill, the military kids, it's going to be a piece of cake, they're going to be so well behaved. But what really blindsided me was um, just really the mental health needs uh, and the trauma that so many um, kids will go through just because of the deployments and because of the constant, the transitions and um, not being able necessarily to acclimate into a new environment quickly. And so um, that was a big shift in my thinking as a school administrator. Yeah. You know, when it, when it became obvious to me, Rachel, that the impact that my deployments had had on my children, and and this sounds crazy, but it wasn't until the day I retired. And the day I retired, I'd spent almost 23 years in the army, I retired on November 2nd, my mom's birthday, and it was at McDill. And we were at the uh, all rank center right there on, on Bayshore. And I think that's, it's, I think it's still Bayshore, but uh, we were out in the, in the foyer about to enter the main area where hundreds of my friends and family and former colleagues that I'd served with in combat 
wounded buddies. I mean, it was, it was go time. We're, I'm sitting there with General Scott Miller, who's presiding, and we're in our, you know, our, our dress blues, and they're playing the, the music to walk in. It's that close to time to go. And my middle son, Cooper, walks out. And he, at the time, I think he was, I want to say he was 13. I have three boys. He's my middle. He was 13. And he, he said, uh, Dad, can I talk to you for a second? And I said, uh, Cooper, we're a little busy right now. Can we do this after the ceremony? And he said, okay. And he turned away to walk off. And I felt General Miller's eyes like boring through me. <laughs> and he said, you go talk to him. We'll wait. And so I did. And I pulled Cooper into the, into the men's room and I'm like, what's going on, man? And he said, um, are you done? And I said, yeah, that's kind of what this uniform's about, you know? And I was kind of making a joke and he just, he didn't smile or he just stared at me and he asked me again, are you done? Are you really done? And I said, yeah, pal, I'm done. This is it. Lost it. I mean, he lost it and he just buried his head into my ribbons and was like, I mean, just heaving. And of course I lost it. And it was in that moment, Rachel, that I realized, oh my God, like this kid has been carrying this weight all this time. And, and, and man, I didn't have a clue. I was clueless. And, and, and it was a big impact on me. It was a big inspiration for me writing the play because I had missed it. And I think it's so easy to miss what our children go through in, in a military life. I would agree with that too. And another eye-opener when we were having our immersion program here on McDill, a service member was um, talking to the staff and I remember them saying explicitly, you know what, the service members, they voluntarily sign up to serve our country. The kids don't. They don't have a choice in it. And that has touched me so deeply and I always keep that in mind. And that's why I'm just so proud of the kids because they are so proud of their uh, family members who serve and they make the best of what they can um, in some just very unique circumstances. Uh, I love that. And so thank you for indulging me for the first 15 minutes to just talk about our military kids and our military families. And, and you know, God bless you guys for what you're doing at Tinker. And I just, I, it's so appreciated. And I don't think we tell you that enough. Um, but I want to pivot now into uh, more of a macro issue, Rachel, as we think about the last couple of years and your experience as a leader at Tinker and more broadly, the, you know, the educational arena where our children had to go through a a very, very difficult time with COVID and all of that went with it. And I wonder if maybe you could talk about the last couple of years and what just at a high level, what your observations were on what that was like for your kids, your teachers, your staff, uh, um, you know, what was it that you all experienced? And then maybe we'll pivot into um, maybe isolating that into some discussions, but I, I'd love to just get your takeaways from the last couple of years. Absolutely. And I can honestly say um, this um, past year, really has been the most difficult. Um, this I'm going in, I, that was my 30th year in education and absolutely the hardest ever. And we were just reminiscing about the past three years. We're going into our third school year with an impact from COVID and just the challenges. Mm. And I think for the kids in particular, um, 
we saw it a little more here. Hillsborough County did a fantastic job. We had um, we had the in-person um, learning. We offered that. Um, we had that short span from spring break to the end of the first school year in 2020, where it was all virtual. But then parents had that option for that next school year, and um, I think that really, really helped reconnect some kids. Because at Tinker, when we were getting some, we get students from all over the country, all over the world. And we were getting some students that last year, that was their first time in school, even though they were in second grade, because it had been virtual. And so we started noticing some patterns here that children were having difficulty. We're so used to, oh, let's get in a group. Let's work together. Well, they had never done that for over two years. And we started training them in kindergarten to do that. So definitely um, those social skills, just getting along, being able to communicate and play. And so we're seeing trends too, not just at Tinker, but in education, um, just being able to verbalize with people. And I'm saying that's happening with adults as well. Um, Mm. Having some difficulty making those social connections with others. And I can say um, we really focused as a leader. um, We usually push and drive and drive, but we had to pivot and really focus on people's mental health because we wow. really saw that it was taking a toll and that, you know what, it's okay to take some mental health days because um, this is really hard work. Yeah. And I think by emphasizing that, it helped um, get a lot of people through some very difficult times. I, I tell you, you, you just said so much there and I want to unpack it. Uh, I want to start with what you said about the, just the, the, the social impacts. And because one of the things that we talk about, as you know, as a listener to the podcast, a lot on here is the fact that we are social creatures. Humans, our, our superpower as a species is our ability to connect with other humans. Like that is what separates us in many ways and allows us to thrive in a very, very harsh environment. And, you know, for rooftoppers, I believe it's super important that we understand our nature, we understand our uh, our human terrain and our biology and what it is that allows us to, to action that superpower of, of grouping and teaming. And you said some things that are really important in the sense that, yes, we are born with an innate drive to connect, but it is learned social behavior, particularly in the, in the time period when you have these kids that we develop the acumen for social capital and human connection. It is, it is instinct and skill. And, and so what I'm hearing you say is that there was a a palpable drop or at least challenge in that realm. Absolutely. And it's trying to overcome how can we still have kids work together? How can we work together when we're still supposed to be physically distant Um, we're still, to be honest, we're still, um, going into our third year of a mask mandate. It's, we had a brief period, um, this past spring that we did not, we weren't required to wear a mask indoors on McDill from spring break till the end of the school year. Well, that's back. And so we had that short period where we were able to see each other smile and even those, um, nonverbal skills and facial expressions, you have to learn to say it with the eyes. So just those minute things are things that we're having to teach or, um, figure out how to do differently. And, and this is, this is depending on your beliefs, thousands of, and thousands of years of wiring that we, 
you know, we not only are we accustomed to giving, but we are accustomed to receiving. And I think about, so, you know, how you all have to deal with that piece of, of, of helping with connection, helping children learn to reconnect um, is going to be something in, in my, my observation that it's probably we're going to be doing for a while. Oh, I would agree. And we have um, here at Tinker, we emphasize um, community building. And so we have time set aside at the start of every school day for class meetings where you can make those connections. Mm. We we even do it with our staff three times Uh a week. We meet and we do one word check in so we can just get a vibe on how people are doing. And if someone with their word, it's, uh, you know, they're struggling, we can go check on them later in the day. So just Uh having that those little connections um, really help us those little. Yeah, so good. Stuart Diamond, uh, one of my mentors in the negotiations world had always said when he was teaching, no matter what the negotiation, what the agenda, what the goal, always make a human connection first. And I've always believed that, but it's as I see what's happening now in the world, it is, it's essential. And, and I'm telling people, regardless of your industry, regardless of your technical arena, Making that human connection, that check-in, as you call it, we do the same thing on the rooftop team and the hero's journey team. We, we take, I think we take 10 to 15 minutes at the beginning of each of our weekly meetings to check in. And we used to not take that much time, but we're so remote now. And, and, and it, these connections are so critical that I think we have to take the time to do that more than ever. I agree. I think it's very valuable. And even for myself, I'm very introverted. I get my energy from going off and being by myself, but didn't realize how much I valued that social connection and needed that. Even though I'm an introvert, I still need to socialize and I thrive off the energy of others and making those connections is just so important. So I think one of the takeaways that I'd like to just call out for all of us, and I think you've, you've just contextually help so much get our head around this is I, I think as we reemerge from this these you know several years of of this storm into whatever the next arena is fighting for and looking for ways to reconnect and stay connected uh I, you know I personally never liked the term social distancing I don't because I think it it, it runs counter to our drive, our biology, our innate needs. I I wish they would have called it physical distancing. Mm -hmm. I get the idea, but you know, it's one thing to physically distance. It's an entirely different thing to socially distance. Would you agree with that or? I would agree too. And I even try to adopt that and say, I want to say physically distant, but not socially because we can still um, connect even though we're six feet apart or across a zoom or any type of connection like that. And we have to work harder at it than ever. And I, I wonder if we could maybe pivot into the mental health thing. Cause I think it's great that you picked up on the mental health piece and man, there's so much stigma around mental health and, 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 Certainly, as we come out of this trying time, I think we've got to we've got to kind of flatten the curve on how we view mental health because it is exponentially higher than what we saw pre-COVID. And I know in the veteran community, we're seeing that in the military family community. But I think now, in many ways, civilians who are just having to be exposed and doing what you all do 
are experiencing higher degrees of, of mental health strain over time. Yes, it is. And it is a focus. And I agree with, we have to drop the stigma of being able to talk about it. And I think particularly with leaders, there's always um, that stigma that, oh, leaders are, they have the right answers or they don't make mistakes. They're not willing to save their mistakes, let alone have that stigma of saying, you know what? I battle with anxiety. I battle with depression. And having leaders that are willingly um, open about that, I think will help everyone else. Well, let's unpack that. How did you, first of all, what were the observations that you made over this three-year journey where you started to see, yeah, mental health is a thing. It's happening in, in my own my own organization. Um, how did you, what did you, what was it that you noticed? What was it that you saw? Did you see it in yourself? Was it happening with you as well? Like, how did you start to become aware of the impact that mental health challenges were having during the, the, the pandemic evolution there? I would have to say it probably came with my own self-awareness and uh-huh. knowing because having a history of depression, but being able to deal with it just through different coping mechanisms, but then leading into COVID, realizing, oh my gosh, why I normally use to cope isn't really working anymore. And mm-hmm. it is really heavy and I'm really struggling. And then I'm thinking, wow, if I'm feeling this way and I had it all under control, I'm thinking other people are probably struggling as well. And so, and that's when I finally just opened up at one of my, um, it was a virtual faculty meeting and I finally opened up about my struggles. And then afterwards, so many people, so many of my staff members came up. Thank you for saying that. I've been feeling the same way. And it's like, oh my gosh, if I had known, I probably would have done it a little bit sooner. But just having that that validation um, that we're not alone when we're going through this. Yeah. So this was the conversation you had, you and I had out in the parking lot. And I was so excited because I just thought, man, this is a cool leader right here who has, who has the courage and the, um, you know, just the generosity to repurpose what I call your scars, your, your struggles in the service of others like that. It, uh, Daniel Coyle in his book, The Culture Code, he calls it signaling vulnerability. And the, the context he uses to make the case are actually Navy SEALs and, and the, that the most effective, at least in his assessments and surveys, the most effective leaders in these, in these highly elite combat units were the ones who signaled vulnerability. They were the ones who, who, who took off the, the body armor, so to speak, and said, look, this is what's going on here. And I, I, I agree with that. I, I have to tell you, um, from my experience on veteran suicide, I had a, a very, very near uh, close call with with uh, taking my own life. And and it stemmed from depression and survivor's guilt and a range of other things. And I kept it from my wife, my kids for a very long time and ended up talking about it uh, on a TED stage. And from that, I can't even tell you the number of people who I had conversations with who would say I was in that closet, man. I same thing, and you know, just like this knowing affirmation that it, that they weren't alone. And uh, I, 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 I'm curious. Did you did you see a similar response from your staff and teammates when you when you opened up like that? How did they How did they respond? Yes, it was definitely um, very supportive yeah. and just um, thankful for the opportunity to hear that story because it, it made it okay. 
And I think so many times leaders aren't willing to step out and be vulnerable because they're afraid that, okay, maybe it will risk me getting a promotion or maybe um, people will see me as weak. I feel like I am seen as anything but weak. I think it really made me a stronger leader when I became more vulnerable. Yeah, for sure. And you know, there's a word that I've been suggesting, Rachel, to rooftop leaders who perhaps maybe struggle with the word vulnerable uh, because, you know, in certain communities, being vulnerable, if not clearly defined, can have connotations or even negative impacts to one's career, even well-being. You know, uh, if a, I'll give you a case in point, but like if a, you know, if a special operator makes himself or herself vulnerable in a firefight, you know, that's not, Mm -hmm. that's not a good idea. And while that seems like super simple and, and evident, but I found that the word relatable actually is a nice interchangeable word for vulnerable because the science actually backs it up. If you think about us as humans, what is it we're actually looking for as social animals? We're looking for someone we can relate to. We're looking for someone who is relatable so that we can survive with them. I mean, at our, at our core, at our biology, that's what we're trying to do. And vulnerability is a manifestation of that. But if you really think about it, if, if, if you present yourself as relatable to someone, you have to be vulnerable, right? But if for some reason, I've found that word is far more actionable than vulnerability. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? I love it. What a great word. I can't wait to start adopting it because, first of all, it seems to me has a more positive spin on it because even though I consider myself relatable now, um, that... Um, the word vulnerable does, it does tend to have those weakness and I like relatable and everyone is looking for that connection. And if you do make yourself relatable, then you'll have more social connections. I like that. Yeah. Thank you for cool. it. Oh, absolutely. And um, I'm anxious to hear how it's received in, and, and there's one other thing I want to call out that you do that I think is so cool. And I think uh, uh, something we can all learn from, and it is the, cause I believe this, whether it is vulnerability or relate relatability, I think inherent to that, the quickest, the, the biggest trust accelerant, the quickest way to, to, to connect to someone and, and, and um, help them through whether it's mental health or whether it's other challenges or just to inspire them is struggle. It is this, this notion that, Struggle is a universal singular in life. It is what Daniel Coyle calls a biological necessity. We all go through it and we, we would not be where we are were it not for struggle. And it, it is inherent in our life. And just the fact that you talked about your, your exposure to depression and then that it wasn't working and then illuminating your struggle, and this is key, in the service of other people. You didn't just go in there and dump and have a therapy session at the expense of your staff. Like you did it with generosity. And I'm always astounded when leaders can do that. Was that hard for you? Did you find yourself in that moment where you, how did you feel when you were about to have that talk with your staff? I was so nervous. I had um, prepped it the night before and I was just like, and I probably was even a little bit hesitant. I almost, I was probably had those moments thinking, you know what, maybe I don't do it. But then I'm like, 
it was like you said, it's about being a service to others. And I really feel like when we go through struggles, I don't question why, because I always feel that the why is so I can help someone through a similar struggle mm. later down the road, because so many people have helped me as I'm going through some struggles. Oh, I relied upon her because she had a similar issue with her child. So I had just a little bit of hesitant. And then when I did it, it was like, oh, wow, I can't believe I really did that. That yeah. <laughs> isn't typical. But then the response afterwards and the thank yous made it all worth it. That's so great. And I, I appreciate, again, you giving us insights into the what Stephen Pressfield calls the resistance that you were feeling right before go time. And I just think that's so important because when we are generous with our scars, when we repurpose struggles in the service of others, it's not going to feel like an end zone dance. You know, it's going to feel like you've been at a to a day practice and you've left everything on the field and you're not really sure whether you should have done it or not. Like it, it at least in the beginning, it's going to feel that way. And I found for me, even afterwards, when I, if I put myself out there, I feel fulfilled, but I don't feel like celebratory. Like I just, it was like, wow, I put myself into that and whew, that was, it's exhausting. Yes, I would agree with that. Um, anytime that you're exploring yourself and what you're going through, I think it is, it's just mentally draining um, yeah. going through something like that. So how did you, so once that happened and you put that out there, what was the follow-on activity with your staff? How did you, how did they, did it, was it, did it, was it contagious? Did they start to pick up similar behaviors around mental health? I mean, did you see it start to permeate? What happened next? Yes. And I think it just made it okay to talk about it. And not necessarily that we were talking about it all as a whole group, but having little pockets of people willing to talk about it and um, having that spread. But then also from that, just knowing the struggles that people were having, putting an emphasis on lifting people up, making ourselves feel better by being of service to others, by doing kind deeds to others. It's always uplifting um, with that. Now, I remember we ended up the um, school year with a 21-day kindness challenge and gratitude. And you logged into your computer and the first email that you sent before you read anything was a thank you to someone else on staff and what they did. And 21 days of that was phenomenal. And it just really helped lift everyone's spirit after a very long year. Man, what a great uh, activity. And I, I hope, I, I know my team, we're going we're gonna to give that a try. I, I really, really like that. And you know what I like about it, Rachel, is that it is, it is, it is a true example of, of when we're always talking about social capital, which is every social scientist I've ever talked to, every organizational psychologist I've ever talked to has said, You've got to have, in a high-performing organization, you've got to have social capital. You've got to have those tangible and intangible linkages between humans that get you through the hard times. And uh, you build that when risk is low. You don't build it when risk is high. If you try to do it when risk is high, then it's completely transactional. So I really love this 21-day application of gratitude and outreach because you're building social capital on the front end. And so what was, what were some of the, did, were there, were there, were there indicators or outcomes of that, that you saw on the other side that were 
tangible or measurable or even just observable? Probably just observable. Um, people um, just seeming to be in a more positive mood. Um, the end of a school year, can, people we, we educators get a little bit cranky. <laughs> hey, my mom's a career <laughs> teacher. My mom is a career high school teacher and she was my teacher. I know exactly what you're talking about. And you're, you're, what you're not saying is even more hilarious. Ah, but just knowing, seeing people more in a positive light, but then um, getting some emails from people, you know, that they came back to me. Oh, someone reached out and they thanked me for this. This really was a great idea. Thank you so much because it feels so good to sit down and not only type an email to someone else, but also to be receiving those. Yeah. How did you, you know, you're, you're, you're carrying a very heavy rucksack leading the team. You have to absorb a lot of the load that your staff's carrying. How do you handle your own recovery and self-care? I, um, I do make sure I disconnect from work. Um, I know, I know many principals don't, they're on call all the time. I, um, had, to be honest, I had difficult patch, um, in my marriage a long time ago when I was a workaholic where I didn't disconnect. And in order to make sure that the marriage survived, it's like, okay, when I get home, I don't check my emails. And Mm -hmm. if you're calling me, it has to be a true, true emergency. And, um, I, I cut off at 5 PM and I pick it up the next morning at seven and truly disconnecting and focusing on family is so important to me. But then also having those other times, those other things that will sharpen my saw, like going out paddle boarding, um, reading, doing things like that, cooking, just taking care of myself and knowing that, but then also, um, having tight knit groups, having a friend that I know I can call if I'm having a struggle um, with something, but those are all important and making sure um, if I need to, to reach out and see a, see a counselor if needed. So good. So, so we're like 40 minutes in and you've given us like seven best practices uh, on this. And I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful for it. And I heard sharpening the saw there. Are you a Stephen Covey fan? Of course. And so, and we're a leader in me school. So our kids um, learn those seven habits as well. But I was a a fan before I even came um, here and I really lived by those. And my favorite habit, of course, is seeking first to understand, listening to other people's um, stories um, first so that you can make those connections. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to risk our audio quality here and grab a book that um, I want to share with you um, and I want to get your take on it. So I want to kind of share it with you and our listeners at the same time. And then I want to, uh, I want to get your take on it. But I, I, this book, I don't know if you've ever heard of it. The only leaders worth following um, nope. by, by Tim Spiker and a, a dear friend, uh, Chris White, who's a member of my, my T360 mastermind that I run. He, um, he recommended this book to me and I'm going to, I'm just going to give the highlights of it, but what I love about this book and, and, uh, you really, and I'm not kidding, Rachel, you really do embody this is, um, he says that the, the paradigm change on leadership is that it, it is more about who, not what. And when he makes the case for this, it seems so obvious, but when you think about everything we read and do and train on leadership, it's what you do, right? We, so we're always talking about what you do. But um, he says it's about who, not what. And what's important, but it's secondary. And then he goes on to define what he means by the who 
And he says that leaders worth following are inwardly sound and others focused above all else. And as soon as I read that, I just, I literally just sat the book down and I was like, holy cow. Like, and I started just thinking about every leader that I followed, you know, just willingly and readily and how inward, you know, those two things were very resonant to me. So I want to just get your impression on how that lands on you, the who, not what, and then, and then inwardly sound and others focus. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Just first impressions. Can't wait to read the book. Always looking for a new, a new title to read, especially on leadership. But I do think it's so important to be that inwardly sound, um, having that strong base. And this goes back to Covey as well, but my mission statement, um, I review it every year, but it has stayed solid since the day I wrote it. And it's to inspire others to use their strengths. And I'm going to do that while clearing the path for them and remembering to have fun along the way. And Mm. so that resonates. And that's my whole life. It's not just me as an administrator, but as a mom, I do the same thing. I encourage my kids to use their strengths to reach their goals. And I uh, always remind them to have fun too. But having that really core and knowing your true values, I think um, makes leadership easier because it gives you those parameters that you're good, those just the guide. It's the roadmap for you as a leader. A couple of kind of fall, I guess my dog's barking there. Hold on just a second. We'll probably just leave that in there because everybody knows I have three goofy labs. Um, my, the funny part about my, my one lab who barks, his name's Hoover. He's 12 years old and he weighs like 7,000 pounds. He barks and he can't even get off the floor. Like, I don't know why you're, what are you, you're not even going to do anything. Uh, but, um, anyway, what would you say to a leader who is struggling right now organizationally inside their organization with, um, just fatigue and stress because you, you are so exposed to this in the education arena and your, your, your staff is, what would you say to that leader? Who's been on a long journey of this, uh, and, and they're starting to feel the weight on themselves and on their team. Cause a lot of times when I found, when we reemerge into the sunlight, Rachel, it's, it's like you said, the third year's the hardest. What would you say to that person uh, based on the lessons you've learned from your journey? I would, I would suggest take, take a little time away. Take some time away to reevaluate um, how things are going um, with that and to refocus on the purpose and go back to that, um, that core why. Why are you doing what you do and make sure that you're still really committed to that. But knowing if you're really stressed out as well, not hesitating to pick up a phone and make an appointment with a counselor or a therapist if needed, because I think too many times people don't look into that. Um, They may perceive that as weakness, but just having someone to talk to you or listen to you uninterrupted and help you think through some things I think is invaluable as leaders as well. But then also having that core group of people that you can trust implicitly to um, 
help you think through some situations as well. But also knowing that it it does get better. I mean, even I know some of my days are just so, so hard. But then two years down the road, I look back and you know what? It was hard that day, but it wasn't anything that was unmanageable. Yeah, such sage counsel. And you're right. I mean, the ability, I have several counselors who I work with, depending on the arena. And um, I, I I don't know that I could perform at the level I, I know I couldn't. I couldn't perform at the level that I perform if I didn't have that. And it took me a while to figure that out, that it was more than just um, fixing something or it was, it was about getting to a level of high performance and, and clearing space in your mind and in your soul and in your body so that you can play at the highest level. Absolutely. And I, I like that too, making sure that you are physically healthy, but you're also mentally healthy as well. And that whole mind, body, spirit thing is um, so important. Oh yeah, for sure. A couple of final questions here. Um, When you think about our kids and what they've been through, and I, and I know you've got kids at various ages yourself. So like, what would you say to parents who are on the other side of this three-year period and, and trying to figure, like, what do our kids, what do you think our kids need at home and in life from parents as a result of, and again, I'm not trying to ask you to project into the parental role, but I mean, you've, you see so much. Uh, from from the trenches, like what our kids are going through. What would you say to parents listening to this right now who are, you know, facing a lot of the same challenges on what do I need to do for my kids? What are what are they experiencing? Where can I play my position? What would you say in terms of just what you've seen with so many children? Uh, I think the best advice would be to be there if you can, in some capacity, if either physically or if one of our military families, you're deployed, you're still making those connections as well. But I think it goes back to Covey as well. And what would be the eighth habit is finding your voice, listen to children's voices, take that time to actually listen, um, because they have so much to say, and they have so many questions. And having that quality time to actually connect, whether it's over a game or while you're making dinner, we have such busy lives but really having that time and it doesn't have to be special, like going off to do something fancy, like to a theme park or to the beach, just having that quality time around the dinner table or while they're helping them clean their room and spending that time listening to what they have to say and not interrupting and um, having to teach them a lesson every time, but just getting to know them even better. That's so good. That's so good. And I, violate that with my youngest son more than I can even tell you. And, and I'm supposed to be Mr. Connection and all this and poor Braden, the second he opens his mouth, I start telling him how it is. And, and uh, you know, I I'm really working on it, Rachel. I really am, but it's a, it's a work in progress. And I just, I so appreciate you saying that as a parent, I, I love the uh, the analogy that Dr. Benjamin Hardy gives in Personality Isn't Permanent. He says that we should all strive to be an empathetic witness where we just bear witness to the journey of the person in front of us and we see them, we hear them, 
we acknowledge what they feel and we don't try to judge it or criticize it. We just meet them where they are, not where we want them to be. And I think that's what I just heard you say in a much more efficient way. <laughs> and it's great. Um, and it's something that can be learned. I can tell you um, my soft skills are not my strength. And being empathetic is not high on strength. I'm very analytical, get the job done. But I can say you can grow those skills and it's so important to take the time to do it. Yeah. And I'll, I'll offer this to you and anyone else who wrestles with the hard, the soft skill versus hard skill dynamic. And this is something that I teach even at the Green Beret qualification course and federal law enforcement is I, I say that, first of all, the, the term soft skill, I believe, is a term that we can um, do away with in our rooftop lexicon, the way that we could, you know, even with between vulnerability and relatability. And, and here's why. Here's the science of it. I believe that in reality, if you look historically at leaders throughout history, the leaders with the greatest impacts, even the warriors, their hard skills were soft skills, their ability to mobilize large numbers of people to do things they otherwise wouldn't do. And I actually can't, uh, this term I use is a uh, big fan. I'm a big fan of T.E. Lawrence of Arabia and the way that he mobilized the, the Badu tribes to stand up against the Ottoman Turks in World War One. And, you know, his skill set was largely the quote unquote soft skills. It was he was a fierce warrior, but it was his storytelling and his ability to project a new pattern into the minds of these uh, Bedouins of the city of Aqaba falling into their hands if they could move together through the desert. And he told them a story and he told it well. And, and where I'm going with all this, Rachel, is that the term that I uh, promote and I encourage is Lorenzian skills. Uh, and, and, and because they are, they're the, they're actually the secret sauce of, of what we do in so many ways. And um, I think you are selling yourself short. I think you are actually magnificent in your Lorenzian skills. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, no, really good advice on kids. F final question. Um, what advice would you give leaders today who are operating at the, the highest levels that are playing the, with, the, with, the, with, the, with the biggest stakes uh, in politics, in, in corporate, in media, because, and here's why I say that, is I believe that uh, leaders like you are the ones who really uh, are playing with equally high stakes. You are in the game and you, you have a better sense of yourself than a lot of these uh, high-level leaders who have become detached. What advice would you give senior leaders today who are wrestling with some of the nation's thorniest problems based on your experience as a leader over the last 30 years? What would you tell them that you've learned along the way that they might try themselves? I think we focus, and I've heard you talk about this too much, on we're too divisive. And we need to focus on what we have in common. Because we have probably, a, we probably, most people I meet, we probably differ on a couple of major issues. But for the most part, we are very similar. And um, the fact that we're Americans, 
and focus on what brings us together as a country and stop focusing on what's different. Because um, I think too often, and it was probably in some movie somewhere that we're focused on the 20% that the person isn't rather than focusing on the 80% that they are. And so looking at who they are and what makes them similar to us, I think is going to get us where we need to be. That's so good. And so in line with the entire um, operationalizing of the upswing, this, this implementation of bridging, uh, bridging trust in our society and, and social capital. And this is what we're going to have to do as leaders um, to get over the trance, the divisionism, the churn that we face. And you're spot on. It, it is, you know, I, I, I worry far, uh, far more about the internal division and shadow tribalism that is ripping us apart from the inside out than I do any external threats, even ISIS. Yeah, we, yeah, we are tearing ourselves apart here. Um, well, you are certainly an amazing role model for all of us, uh, Rachel, and, and I can't thank you enough for what you do for our kids, for what you do for our military. Uh, I consider you just, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a sage partner in, in this journey that we're on. And I hope that you'll come on with me again. I think there's so many things for us to talk about and unpack. And, you know, we can use the context of your world and mine and what we're both seeing. But I think at the end of the day, um, I know I've just learned a ton from you today. And you've you've shown me because you're doing it in real time. You're doing it where it really matters. And um, I'm, I'm going to probably spend the next hour or two just processing what you said, because it's really great. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you'd like to share with the audience uh, that we haven't covered already? Um, I think just being aware of the mental burden that especially school leaders um, carry, because everything that happens on the campus and in the lives of the children of our school and the lives of our staff goes through us. And I can tell you, it, it can get really heavy because... Um, there's a lot of things that go on with people and it all funnels to us. And then we really internalize it because of privacy issues and things like that. So um, if you have the opportunity to um, support a school leader and that being teachers as well, because they, they've had a heavy, heavy lift, um, but it's all worth it because we all love kids so much. And just knowing that we can shape the future each and every day is just so exciting. I think I have the best job in the world. It's a heavy lift, but it's one worth lifting. Well, as the son of a career school teacher, I can tell you that I am a huge fan and uh, you are absolutely a great American. And I'm, I'm so proud of what you do. And I'm, I'm just so grateful that you came on on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Okay. Thank you so much, Rachel. And thanks to everybody for listening. Um, we're going we're gonna to continue to move forward uh, as we come out of this, this long storm that we've been in and look for pathways to better ground. And a lot of that's going to come from how you connect with the people in your arena, how you lead through these hard times, and how you form those purpose-based human connections. And uh, my promise to you is that we'll keep talking about that here and on, on the best practices on how to do that from both art and skill. So uh, thanks again for being here. Thanks for listening. If this podcast was useful, please, um, we'd love for you to give it a rating, uh, comments, and share it with someone who could benefit from it because we are building a rooftop nation of leaders who play a bigger game and you are part of that. So thanks for what you do. And we'll see you on the rooftop. Mm-hmm.